0: that just is something that I is an idea that I'm probably going to have to pursue at some point and this is kind of you know this is kind of Jeff Kripal territory I guess but uh, but like the idea that like we write these things and they just you know they get repeated enough and they get mythologized enough that they just all t- become true you know in some sort of perverse fucked up way I think it's something that is just really needs to be looked at a little bit more Thank you.
1: Shelby Downard Jr. is the ultimate enigma and a true mystery machine. His life appears to be structured around obscurity by design, and any researcher, myself included, searching for him will encounter a maze of intrigue and mythmaking. And arguably, for those familiar with his work, Downard is the most controversial conspiracy theorist of the 21st century.
2: I know some you like will be And I know some you like will be And I know some you like will be And I know some you like will
1: be gone. Serfiel Stevenson, the co-host of the podcast Conspira Normal, is a fellow Downard researcher. And in the past year, he and I and a small group of theorists have made a great deal of progress in separating fact from fiction and discovering the real Downard.
3: But, you know, then again, like we're seeing with the downer thing, I mean, um, when something is a a hoax, you know, or self-generating is a better word, I guess. You know, a lot of people just stop right there and they're like, oh, well, you know, it's bullshit. But uh, a lot of times that's when the like real questions begin. And that's when the real weird shit starts with that self-generation. Like good old Alan Greenfield says, uh, he doesn't believe there's such thing as a hoax.
1: If I'm not, if I'm someone who doesn't know who the fuck James Shelby Downard is, you know. Like...
3: Oh man, that's always, that's always a hard one. It's kind of like Jesus, you know, like who is, who is James Shelby Downer to you? You know, I mean, essentially he is the most enigmatic conspiracy theorist of all time. He's like the the Hollywood image of the weirdo conspiracy guy. I mean, I think a good way to start would be just like my experience and how I encountered Downer, because it's probably similar to a lot of other people. I first encountered him through the Apocalypse Culture books uh, when I was around 16. I think this was around the year 2000. And I had an older friend who was really into all this like 80s and 90s industrial culture. Uh, what we'll probably refer to as like the apocalypse culture stuff to current 93 and uh, Leibach and all this kind of edgy industrial stuff with these kind of fascist aesthetics. Uh, but he was like really into these downer essays like, man, you got to read this stuff, man. So I read him and I was just like, oh, wow, this is this guy's crazy because I've been exposed to a lot of conspiracy theory uh, media pretty socially aware in the in the 90s, even though I was really young. You know, I understood, like, I watched the news. I understood kind of what was going on with the militia movement, and a lot of the extremist stuff. Uh, I was already, you know, I already listened to Art Bell, already turned on all this weird stuff. But with Downard's essays, especially King Kill 33, you know, I recognize, like, here is something different because it is just, it's much more mystical and a lot of times it doesn't really bother with cross-referencing anything. And it's kind of just like why, you know, really wild associations and connections and schizophrenic like conspiracy theory that has a real mystical and occult tinge to it. Why Downer is so interesting is that there's there's like layers of of mystery involved. So, I mean, first, like just trying to understand his theories themselves, mystical toponymy, and um, play how he plays the name game, et cetera. Um, just trying to understand the stuff is enough. And he never really gets into the mechanics behind his theories. He's just stating that there are sorcerers who employ these methods and seem to make events happen around certain names and numbers, but then. Like the second layer, once you start getting into the discrepancies in his different writings, then the questions of authorship comes up. Then you start looking at the people he was around, what they're involved in. That's a whole nother thing. And then third, the mystery of the man himself and whether he existed comes up because of that questionable authorship. It's just like you know, like a Russian doll with multiple layers. It just, it doesn't stop. There's there's just so many enigmas within this one man. And so it's this really endless source of endless inquiry.
1: I caught the downward bug when I first discovered synchromysticism over a decade ago. I've always loved high strangeness and weird mysteries, especially the strange web of coincidences and synchronicities that surround the JFK assassination. One needs to look no further than Carrie Thornley, the founder of Discordianism, and his personal connections to the JFK assassination to find a webwork of coincidences that defies reason. Like many others, this was how I found the works of James Shelby Downer Jr., and his essay co-authored with Michael A. Hoffman, entitled King Kill 33, which first appeared in a collection of essays called Apocalypse Culture, which journalist Adam Parfrey edited and published through his Feral House Publishing Company. In King Kill 33, Downard lays out a framework for a vast conspiracy to assassinate President John F. Kennedy, carried out by the Freemasons as part of a killing of the king ritual for fertility and renewal in America. According to Hoffman, in Francis Ford Coppola's film Apocalypse Now, the protagonist, Captain Willard, appears before Colonel Kurtz toward the end of the film and sees Scottish anthropologist James Frazier's book, The Golden Bow, and it's the killing of the King rite which is shown. Central to Fraser's The Golden Bow is the story of the high priest of the cult of Diana, Who is also known as the King of the Wood, and who has a clear relationship with the Oak King, Pan, and the Green Man. His duties were to administer the rites of the cult and to protect the golden bow of Diana's sacred tree at the Grove of Nemi. The High Priest was also tasked with keeping watch day and night for his successor, who would arrive and murder him to become the new High Priest. The embodiment of the mythology of the died and reborn corn god a theme that Frazier believed could be found in almost all religions then and since, from Mithra to Osiris to Jesus. Hoffman and Downard viewed the JFK assassination as a similar ritual, though one on a national scale with the intent of greening America and increasing its financial and political fertility. Downard further elaborates that, quote, the killing of the king is a Masonic ritual dating back to the murder of Hiram Abiff and King Solomon's temple in Masonic legend. Since then, the forces of darkness and all their various guises have used similar ritualized murders to dispose of their enemies all down the ages. The assassination of JFK was one such episode. Masonry does not believe in murdering a man in just any old way. And in the JFK assassination... It went to incredible lengths and took great risks in order to make this heinous act correspond to the ancient fertility oblation of the killing of the king. Fraser makes the argument that the sacred sacrificial king himself is a spirit of vegetation, a divine green man. The sacred sacrificial king is traditionally coronated in the spring, reigns through the summer, and is ritualistically killed during the harvest and then is reborn on the winter solstice to repeat the annual process. It's worth noting as well that Pan has correlations with the Oak King, and the sacred sacrificial king concept presented by Fraser was a major influence on Robert Graves, who in his work The White Goddess presents numerous examples of the tradition of the Holly King and the Oak King. They stand as personifications of winter and summer and engage in an endless cyclical battle reflecting the changing seasons of the year. Strangely enough, Downard ended up spending a significant portion of his early years in Kentucky. His father, James Shelby Downard Sr., received a patent for a new asphalt process in 1936 and was responsible for paving most of the early roads in Oklahoma, Kansas, and the rest of the American heartland before selling his company and moving the family to Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Downard would attend Center College in Danville, Kentucky, only 30 minutes north of Somerset, and his classmates would turn out to be the modern patriarchs of Somerset, the businessmen and the bankers who would build this town into what it is today. Maybe one of the strangest Downard connections to the penny roll mystery comes via Jim Brandon and his book, The Rebirth of Pan, which figured prominently in Hilliard there are immediate correlations with the work of Dan Dutton and his opera The Fawn and the Night of Pan ritual that was performed here in Somerset by Greg Newkirk in the Hellyer season two finale. The Green Man motif is also heavily present in the rebirth of Pan, but the author's name, Jim Brandon, is a pseudonym. His real name is William N. Grimstad, and he is one of the originators of the Downward mythos. It turns out that Grimstead lived in Louisville, Kentucky in the late 1960s and early 1970s, working as a journalist for the Courier-Journal newspaper. It was during that time that he traveled throughout Kentucky working on his book, Weird America, A Guide to Mysterious Places in the United States, also written under the pseudonym Jim Brandon. Grimstead and Michael Hoffman, who are likely responsible for co-authoring all of the Downard works, are both controversial characters who are connected to far-right groups, anti-Semitism, and Holocaust revisionism. It would also appear that some of the current far-right conspiracy theories, like Pizzagate and the QAnon movement, have been heavily influenced by Downard's theories and writings. One of my first interactions with the idea of the Downardian nightmare was through the Empire of the Will books, written by Walter Bosley. The first book in the series was co-authored with professor of history, Richard Spence, who is one of the most prominent Downard researchers and whom you may remember from season one of Penny Royal. The investigation that he and Walter undertook into the strange ritual murders that occurred in San Bernardino, California in 1915 are of particular importance to the Penny Royal mystery. As we began to believe that there were similar ritual murders here in Somerset and Pulaski County that might be part of some magical working while doing research for season two of penny royal walter and i had the chance to compare notes on downard and a number of other connections between his ongoing research and the penny royal mystery
0: where downard really came into play for me was when i was looking in that general sense at latitude 33 the 33rd you know degree north of latitude and when you know it's demonstrated that of course the jfk assassination takes place at roughly latitude 33 and i and and i put that in there initially in in that book to show hey there's all sorts of strange and weird things that have happened at this latitude and you know disneyland the least of which and as I looked, um, as of course I read King Kill Thirty Three, and that really caught my interest even more so because of the, you know, the the Hecate symbolism in there as well. It also had a thread to, again, reading King Kill 33 and and getting familiar with Downard, you know, um, the the Disneyland led me to Downard through the Latitude 33, you know, via JFK assassination. And then the discussion of, for instance, um, where Lee Harvey Oswald is buried in the research leads to a discussion of, oh, by the way, You know, there are those who think that John Wilkes Booth was not killed in that barn and he lived under a, you know, a different name and died in Texas. And where he dies in Texas is in the vicinity of, you know, things having to do with Charles Delshow and the Sonora Aero Club stuff. And so, you know, it's this one thing leading to another. So that that right there is the context in which Downard was pertinent to what I was doing. Now, in The Empire of the Wheel context rick you know he he actually taught me some things about downer because he's even more versed on downer so most of the mentions that um are in that book that's that's coming from rick and we you know we were showing um to to get a quick context of, of the brand and style of weirdness and I'm really intrigued with you know what you said about there's the real downard, and then there's the literary device that was used by you know the the other guys Hoffman and Parfrey and them but still i'm I'm just really intrigued by how not only did he seem to see whether it's the real downard or the the literary one we're we're talking about this figure right that's out there in this field of this kind of research and weirdness, not only seeing the weird patterns and the 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 threads, but actually is a a very is himself a part of the weird stuff and the threads. I mean, in in a sense, we all are. I mean, the deeper you go into this, I don't know if you found it yet, but you're you're going to find even more personal connections to this stuff.
1: As Walter Bosley and Richard Spence write in their book, The Empire of the Will, James Shelby Downard conjured up a phantasmagorical and unsettling portrait of an America riddled with Masonic sorcery, called to chaos cultism and mystical toponymy, an America in which literally nothing was what it seemed. Downard purported to unveil this nightmarish reality in such works as King Kill 33, his expose on the occult underpinnings, the JFK assassination, and even more vividly in his bizarre autobiography, The Carnivals of Life and Death. To Downard, the America of baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet was but a facade beneath which the eternal pagan psychodrama played itself out in a never-ending cycle, invisible to those uninitiated in its secret symbols and rituals. It is easy and comforting to dismiss Downard as a simple nutcase, because if he isn't, America is a much stranger place than most of us could possibly imagine. Much of what we know about the early life of Downard comes from his autobiography, Carnivals of Life and Death, edited and co-written by Alina Freeland. The book itself is riddled with inaccuracies, suspicious details, and half-truths. But the core of the story involves events that absolutely happened in the life of a James Shelby Downard Jr. that was born in Ardmore, Oklahoma, on March 13, 1913. Prior to moving to Oklahoma, his father lived in Lima, Ohio, where he owned a bookstore and was the founding member of the Lima Philosophical Society, delivering speeches on political theory, supernatural phenomena, and occult societies. Downard's father and grandfather were both Freemasons, and young Downard recounts purported events and carnivals where his father participated in Masonic rituals. This may have been the basis for Downard's claims that he was being pursued and persecuted by the Freemasons as a pharmacose, or human scapegoat. Throughout Carnivals of Life and Death and all of his works, the main villains are always sorcerous Freemasons. After James Shelby Downard Sr. married Naomi Wilhelm in Oklahoma in 1904, he incorporated the Downard Paving and Construction Company, specializing in the alchemy of asphalt, and would eventually patent a new process of making the material that was responsible for paving most of the early roads in the Midwest, from Oklahoma to Kansas and Texas. Downard Sr. made a fortune paving America's roads and moved the family first to Louisville, Kentucky, and later Cincinnati, Ohio, and finally Fort Thomas, Kentucky, just across the river. Richard Spence has probably compiled the most accurate information on Downard's early life confirming some of the dates and events mentioned in carnivals. I've also invested a lot of time researching and confirming these events, from Downard's achievements in the Eagle Scouts to people and places in Cincinnati that he mentions. It's also interesting that at the time that Downard's family was living in Cincinnati and mingling with the wealthy upper class, there was a burgeoning occult scene with its own magical war playing out between members of the Brotherhood of Luxor and members of the Spiritualist Church these events may have further laid the foundation for Downard's fear of sorcery and secret occult societies. Carnivals of Life and Death mainly covers the years of 1913 to 1935 and focuses on Downer's discovery of grave goods from a tomb in a cemetery in Fort Thomas and the magical cryptographic device known as the Dayton Witch to his acquisition of a series of gold certificates worth millions of dollars that were associated with President Hoover. One of the stranger events described in carnivals is a trip to Taos, New Mexico, with his sister's fiance, Charles Schallings, to do magical battle with a man named Arthur Rocheford Manby. Turns out that Manby was a real person, though Downard has the dates of his death wrong. Manby owned the Mystic Mine near Taos, as well as large swaths of the surrounding land, ruling that part of New Mexico with an iron fist. Manby ran his own clandestine secret service, which he referred to as the United States Civil Secret Service Society. Evidence would suggest that his agents were responsible for a number of the beheadings of people associated with the mystic mind that fell afoul of Manby. And Manby himself was discovered dead in his home, decapitated, with his dogs gnawing on his head. Mambi's beheading is particularly significant to Downard's connection to Somerset and the Pennyroll mystery. His headless body was discovered on July 3rd, 1929, which places it in that peculiar date range of a ritual sacrifice associated with the star Sirius. It also coincides with the dates during which the unsolved murders of Linda Gibson and Cody Garrett took place in 1994 in Somerset. And then... There's the most famous murder in America in the 19th century, the murder and beheading of Pearl Bryan in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, where Downard grew up. Pearl was supposedly murdered by two dental students, Scott Jackson and Alonzo Walling. Rumors have persisted for years that she was murdered in a satanic ritual. Evidence, however, suggests that a private investigator from Somerset, Kentucky, named John Seward, provided false testimony that would lead to both the convictions and execution of Scott and Walling. Later, he would recant this story and state that the actual murderer was one Ann Burton from Somerset, Kentucky. Ann may have been connected to a group in Cincinnati that were directing single, unwed women to a hotel in Somerset where they were murdered by the local sheriff and mayor at the time. And indeed, when Seward fled authorities, he was hidden by Somerset's mayor. At the time these grisly events transpired in 1896, there were a series of beheadings that took place in various parts of America's heartland, possibly connected to a larger ritual working at the turn of the new American century in which we would learn to destroy and control primordial matter. Considering the authorship of carnivals and the various lies and half-truths contained therein, one has to inquire how Alina Freeland was connected to Michael Hoffman and William Grimstead. In an attempt to find out more about those connections and who the real Downard might be, I contacted Samuel Corwin, author, researcher, and biographer of Adam Parfrey, who owned Farrell House and published all of Downard's works. While working on Parfrey's biography, Samuel had encountered the downer material and, intrigued, subsequently interviewed Grimstead, Hoffman, and Freeland. Parfrey's connection to Grimstead and Hoffman made sense because he surrounded himself with extremists on both sides of the political spectrum. But Elena Freeland, writer and occultist, appeared not to be connected to these extremist
4: groups. My my question is, is where does Elena Freeland uh, sit with you know within all this. Like, I guess it'd be it'd be interesting to speculate what her role is. I mean, maybe it was just to to write it. You know, the carnivals of life and death because she's credited as being the writer. She, you know, I asked her a couple questions on Downard and got pretty short answers. I mean, what I sent you was yes. it was it, and so yeah, it makes me wonder. You know, what her role is. I, her and Hoffman go way back. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, and she she's an interesting, like, you know, outsider in this. Like, how does she fit in with um, the kind of, you know, white supremacist racist angle? Because as far as I know, she doesn't have any connections that way.
1: As the story goes, Freeland had a copy of Downard's autobiography that Michael Hoffman had personally printed for her. She was living in England and couldn't stand to read it because it was so badly written. Freeland started making edits on her own and submitted it directly to Adam Parfrey, stating that she didn't want any money and only requesting that Downard's book be available to people because it was the best book on what Freemasons are really like in America and how they operate as criminals. Freeland obviously shared Hoffman and Downert's belief that a grand Masonic conspiracy was afoot. Parfrey thought that she had done an excellent job, and according to Freeland, he promised her that if he ever sold the movie rights for Downert's life, she would be compensated. The question arises, however, how did Hoffman, Grimstead, Parfrey, or even Freeland own the rights to publish Downard's works or share in the rights to his life? especially without his knowledge. If he was really who they said he was, and such a brilliant and mythic intelligence, how would these other individuals control the Downard mythos so completely? And through it all, Downard was a phantom. Freeland states that she grew apart from Hoffman as he became more and more involved with the Holocaust revisionism and the far right in the 1980s and 1990s. No doubt it would seem that the copy of Downer's biography that Freeland received from Hoffman might have been authored entirely by Hoffman himself. The deeper you wade into the Downer mythos, the more difficult it is to separate the Downer material, if there actually is any, from what Hoffman, Grimstead, and their accomplices co authored. There appear to be no works that the real James Shelby Downer Jr. wrote without assistance. Even the Downard Wikipedia entry, itself suspect, indicates that in the early 1970s, he was assisted in his writing and editing by John and Darlene Cox in Lake Havasu. Then, later in the early 1980s, he resided with John and Karen Bissell in Estacada, Oregon, where Karen typed his manuscripts and John assisted with the research. Who were the Coxes and Bissells, and how did they figure into the Downard mythos? Hoffman alleges that in the 1970s, Downard asked him to put together a small book from his material and find a publisher for his theories, to which Hoffman added more details and, as co-author, gave it the name King Kill 33. Hoffman approached Adam Parfrey in Farrell House, unknown to Shelby, and gave Adam the go-ahead to publish it in the first edition of Parfrey's Apocalypse Culture. According to Hoffman, Parfrey faithfully printed a substantial excerpt from King Kill 33, which helped propel apocalypse culture into a bestseller. Hoffman also alleges that Parfrey deleted his own name as co-author on the King Kill 33 essay, despite Hoffman's urgings when subsequent editions were published. Why was Parfrey so reluctant to accept his role as co-author of King Kill 33? Did he think that if too many people were involved in writing the material, then the existence of Downard might be called into question. Adam Go Gowrightly is one of the most well-known authors of books, essays, and articles on conspiracy theory, discordianism, and high weirdness. And his works have appeared in nearly every Zion, underground magazine, countercultural publication, and conspiratorial website imaginable. He also wrote the only book thus far, Trying to Unravel the Downardian Mystery, titled James Shelby Downard's Mystical War. What he talks about is the greening of America, you know, is this downer, do you think? Uh,
5: Yeah. I mean, you know, that concept of the greening of America seems more aligned with the whole hippie, uh, you know, New Age environmental movement conspiracy that Hoffman and Grimstead have written about and, you know, they're in conflict with.
1: Yeah, and and the rebirth of Pan stuff too, the 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 green man. You know, was that Hoffman and Grimstead putting, you know, their spin on it, kind of?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, that's one theory that's been floated, that Downard was this literary construct of sorts. Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to that, you know, but I don't dismiss it either. I mean, I try to keep uh, open uh, mind to, uh, you know, keep my mind open to possibilities. Although you know Hoffman and Grimstead are pretty adamant that Downard was a real deal dude, and there's a lot of evidence out there that somebody named James Shelby Downard indeed existed and lived in you know his latter days at his sister's home in Memphis, Tennessee, and before that during the late '60s and '70s in Florida. At actually, I have the address here where he lived. Rick Spence tracked it down. Hold on a sec. It's uh, the address. There it is. 7529 3rd Avenue, North St. Petersburg, Florida. And so I'm just throwing that out there, you know, in case case there's any listeners out there that might have lived next door to Downward back in the day. And who knows? They might have some stories to share. Anyway. You know, at times in the writings of all these guys, Downard, Hoffman, Grimstead, et al., became hard to tell where one of their, uh, for lack of better terms, one of their conspiratorial concepts ends and then was picked up and riffed on by one of the other three in the group. And Hoffman has stated as much, you know, maybe it was uh, Grimstead, I forgot which one wrote that it was even hard for any of them to know where one of their contributions ended, and one of the others, you know, took it and ran with it. So essentially, the three of them became a synthesis, channeling each other's ideas and expanding upon them, and melding it into a sort of uh, communal do that, uh, you know, it was a, a collaboration that, according to accounts. Started in either 1973 or 1974, when Hoffman, Grimstead, and another fellow named Charles uh, Saunders started getting together with Downard in his uh, legendary Airstream trailer. You know, so an example of the contributions of Michael Hoffman, uh, for instance, to King Kill 33 is the phrase, "The Revelation of the Method." And the phrase, the making manifest of all that is unseen, those came primarily from Hoffman, as far as I can tell. Or, for instance, uh, such a term as the uh, cryptocracy.
1: What makes you think that,
5: though? Because those terms or phrases like uh, cryptocracy or revelation of the method don't appear in the original Downard Manuscript I have, and this manuscript includes uh, Chapter 13, which is the final chapter in the book, which was the original inspiration or the first iteration of what later became known as uh, King Kill 33, a work that evolved over the years. Now, you do see the term greening used in this manuscript, although I don't know for sure that was something Downard Uh, himself put in there or you know might have been something that one of his editors or collaborators added or was an influence on
1: you know that's the thing about hoffman he uses those words um, revelation of the method uh, greening you know etc in his book secret societies and um, psychological warfare
5: yeah and so a term like the greening for instance might have been uh, something one of his collaborators perhaps influenced. And there there were a number of people who played that role of editor, typist, uh, collaborator over the years, among them Hoffman, Bill Grimson, Adam Parfrey to a ex- certain extent, Johanna Friedland, uh, not to mention a fellow cited at the Downerd Wikipedia page named John Cox, who apparently lived in Lake Havasu. I really haven't been able to learn uh, or to find that much about, except that he later changed his name to John Bissell and moved to Oregon, where Downard also uh, supposedly stayed with him, with Bissell and his wife, for a time in the uh, 1970s or early 80s.
1: How could Hoffman publish King Kill 33 without Downer's permission? And what is the Downard Trust, which Hoffman says that he's the trustee of? If Downard really existed, in the way Hoffman and others are suggesting, Downard would have to give his personal permission to these individuals as his agents. And no doubt, Downard's family would have to be involved in the Downard Trust. Downard lived the last years of his life with his sister in Memphis, Tennessee, where Adam Parfrey purportedly visited him and took one of the only pictures of Downard. This formed the basis of the essay Riding the Downardian Nightmare, which Parfrey published in his book, Cult Rapture. This particular part of the Downard mythos, that Adam Parfrey paid a visit to Downard at his sister's home in Memphis, Tennessee, is a bit suspect because of Hoffman's statements about Parfrey's associations with the occult. This is the interview with you, right? Uh And he's talking about the fact that he... Didn't um, that that Shelby was uh, kind of unaware of the fact that he was going to publish the book and gave the go ahead to Parfrey to publish the Mm -hmm. book because he was worried that if Adam found out that Adam Parfrey possibly engaged or worked with people who used magic or Mm -hmm. that uh, Downard would have absolutely refused because right. for some weird reason, he had this Protestant like bent where it was all anti-sorcery, anti-occult, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is totally nuts. But then also like, there's no way that you could take someone else's book, someone's work, right? Mm-hmm. And then publish it and be like, well, he doesn't really know. But I went ahead and said, yes, go ahead and do it. Like he doesn't have any control over it unless Downard doesn't exist in the way that we think he does. Right. Down. down, How did he put it in in the letter? He says, yeah, here it is. He says, yeah, unknown to Shelby. That's how he says it. I say, yeah, he says, I presented it to Adam unknown to Shelby and gave Adam the go ahead to publish the first edition of that rather astounding book, which I think is funny, too. <laughs> it's like he's complimenting him. You know, well, like he's himself. complimenting Parfrey, but he's complimenting him. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he says, I say unknown to Shelby because I anticipated that Shelby might have perceived Adam as being mixed up in the occult and that Adam's contacts and experiences were so eclectic that he inevitably rubbed shoulders with mystics and mentalists. Shelby was of no religion known to me, but he had a kind of Protestant Puritan animus to anything occult, which incidentally, I share, which is weird too, right? So that he's saying, you know, here's Yeah, down, which I share. Down. Yeah, it's like, I share. <laughs> like, are you? Kind of giving a hoodwink, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, You know, nod that, that you are Shelby. Mm-hmm. And then he says, you know, he believed what is called the deep state was mostly a matter of the practice of sorcery. He says if in those early years he had thought Adam was in any way connected to anything like that, he would have not granted permission for the publication. I anticipated that possibility and took initiative. But there's no way he could have had someone else's work published, right? Unless he owned the rights to it in some way. The first time that the name James Shelby Downer Jr. appears in print aside from newspaper articles in the 1920s and 1930s that confirm he was an actual young man growing up in northern Kentucky, is in Robert Anton Wilson's book, Cosmic Trigger. In 1975, after Wilson published his Illuminatus trilogy, William Grimstead corresponded with him regarding an article about Sirius and the number 23, and also sent him a copy of the Sirius Rising tapes. These were recordings that Grimstead, purportedly made of Downard, in St. Petersburg, Florida, while sitting in the conspiracy theorists' silver Airstream trailer. And as we've discussed, the voice on the tapes that's supposed to be Downard lays out a theory of Masonic sorcery and master plans. Downard explains, The United States, which has long been called a melting pot, should more descriptively be called a witch's cauldron, wherein the hierarchy of the grand architect of the universe arranges for ritualistic crimes and psychopolitical psychodramas to be performed in accordance with a master plan. That master plan involves the execution of three alchemical rites. First, the creation and destruction of primordial matter; Second, the killing of the king ritual for the greening of America. And most importantly, third, the making manifest of all that is hidden downard believed that the trinity site for the testing of the first nuclear bomb was intentionally placed on the Hornado del muerto which translates to journey of the dead man the name journey of the dead man probably originated with a german magician named bernardo gruber who died there while fleeing the inquisition in 1670. on july 16 1945 The first detonation of an atomic weapon occurred at the Trinity nuclear test site approximately 40 miles northeast of the Hornado del Morito, and today Spaceport America is a licensed spaceport located in the Hornado del Morito desert basin adjacent to the US Army's White Sands Missile Range. Whether or not the mythical downer existed, it's nonetheless strange to consider the connections between the destruction of primordial matter, the detonation of the first atomic bomb, America's only spaceport, and the death of a 17th century German magician, all correlating to the same geographical area.
4: (laughs)
5: Initially, it was Michael Hoffman who was selling these audio recordings of Downer back in the early 2000s as uh, part of what he refers to as the Downer Trust. And uh, what Hoffman was selling was essentially a lot of the same Material that Bill Grimsted ended up releasing in 2018, which Grimston identified as the Sirius Rising recordings. Uh, you know, that's the ones that Robert Anton Wilson talked about in Cosmic Trigger. At least I believe they are essentially the uh, same recordings, uh, from what I've heard and compared. Um, the
1: the Dannard Trust that you're talking about. Do you do you know what that is exactly?
5: Yeah, funny you should ask that because during the course of working on this uh, Downard manuscript, I began wondering uh, that myself, you know, and just to cover my bases, I recently contacted Hoffman about this. And uh, in a recent email, he informed me, and let me find, I have the email right here. He says in this email, quote, that the Downard Trust was a way to ensure the integrity of the Downard manuscripts from the uh, vagaries of piracy and counterfeiting by publishing uh, them under the name the Downard Trust, connoting the legal standing but also denoting the fact that Downard trusted me to the very end, despite our having disagreements that are typical of any friendship and collaboration of more than 20 years, uh, duration. I am at a loss to know how the integrity of his texts can be maintained in the dreaded public domain. End quote. <clears throat> you know, so the Downer Trust is a way for Hoffman, as he sees it, and if I interpret him correctly, it's a way to protect the integrity of Downer's writings. Yeah, so it was in the early 2000s when I first uh, made contact with Bill Grimstad, which was the period I first started working on my biography of Downard, and you know, one of the things I was interested in were these uh, serious rising tapes that Robert Anton Wilson had talked about in Cosmic Trigger, and from what I've been able to piece together, there was a total of nine tapes in the series, but most of those are no longer in existence, at least according to Grimstad. And what remains is what has been circulated in recent years are these Downward recordings that, once again, from what I've been able to piece together, appeared in the first uh, tape of the Sirius Rising series. And uh, anyway, I stayed in touch with Grimstad, and he was one of my sources for the Downward biography I published in uh, 2007, which I guess he considered to be a reasonable treatment of the subject. And You know, because of my place in promoting or writing about Downard and his works, that's the reason he contacted me. And back in 2015, I think it was with news that he had come across what appeared to be the second part of Downard's autobiography. But there was a caveat, he told me, the material was on microfiche, of all things, several hundred pages of writings. And so if I was willing to split the cost with him to get it converted into a digital format, then I could publish the material. You know, which was no problem. I think you know it was like a total of two hundred dollars, so around a hundred dollars a piece to convert it into TIFF uh, format. I was down with that. Grimstead further cautioned me that, like a lot of downer writings, it it would need a fair amount of uh, editing to whip it into shape, which indeed has turned out to be the case. Uh, Anyway, as far as the provenance of the uh, manuscript, according to Grimstead, it was discovered or rediscovered by Charles Saunders, one of the 340 and Musketeers, along with Grimston and Hoffman who used to meet in uh, Downard's Airstream trailer back in the day in St. Petersburg, Florida. And apparently Downard left this manuscript in Saunders' possession when Downard left Florida for the last time and moved to his sister's house in Memphis. Uh, sometime in the 1980s, uh, you know. So why, one would ask, why me? Why was I given the manuscript, you know? And I'm not sure. Uh, Grimston, uh, as I said, that I did a reasonable job with the bio of Downard, uh, and, uh, you know, I would have thought Parfrey would have been interested in publishing it, but apparently the Carnivals of Life and Death didn't sell particularly well, according to So. Grimstead assumed Parfrey probably wouldn't be interested in it. In fact, I talked to Parfrey about it at one point just to make sure he wasn't interested. And no, he he wasn't. So, uh, And, you know, Grimstead, he's also getting up in years. And for some reason, he and Hoffman really haven't been in touch in recent times. So, you know, tag, you're it. Um, so for whatever reasons, this manuscript filmed into my lap. And I have a friend who told me, well, Adam, you know, Maybe you're just being used as a way to give legitimacy to the work and are yet another person to become an editor or one of the promoters of Downard, you know, who many people at the same time still suggest never actually existed. And basically that the manuscript is being laundered through you, which, of course, seems ridiculous. You know, and I told my friend that, but, you know, that will forever remain uh, part of the downer mythos that even though he's, you know, even though there's ample evidence to show that he did indeed exist, there will forever be that doubt in some people's mind as to whether or not he was a fictional character, you know, like Jimmy Stewart's Harvey the Rabbit, you know, the mystical puka who wielded great influence, but that no one has ever actually seen except for his friends. Grimstead published
1: Anti-Zion, And The Six Million Reconsidered is the Nazi Holocaust story a Zionist propaganda ploy under his own name, William N. Grimstad. He published Weird America, A Guide to Places of Mystery in the United States and The Rebirth of Pan under the pseudonym Jim Brandon. I was curious if he had ever published under any other names or pseudonyms. That's when I discovered that Grimstad had also co-authored a book with Judge Raymond L. Drake called the Last Gold Rush, Raymond L. Drake's Pictorial History of the Cripple Creek and Victor Gold Mining District in Colorado. Grimstead also appears to have assisted Judge Raymond Drake in the research and publication of another book, Classic American Steamrollers, 1871-1935. According to Grimstead's version, of how he encountered Downard for the first time. He says that he was working for a news publication in the Washington, D.C. area around 1974 and had printed a photo of Martin Luther King Jr. at a civil rights march arm-in-arm with Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who according to Grimstead was a professor of Jewish mysticism at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City. Grimstead says he wrote the words Kabbalah Connection as a caption and a friend living in the Tampa Bay area of Florida left a copy of that publication in a coffee shop where Downard apparently visited shortly thereafter and noticed the photo and caption. He was so intrigued with Grimstead's Kabbalah connection that he wrote to him in Washington, D.C. Grimstead says that he was so impressed with Downard's synchromistic view of the mundane world that he thought Downard might be a great subject for an interview, and so the serious rising tapes were born. When I heard these details, I had to question the veracity of Grimstead's account of his initial discovery of Downard, or at least note some suspicions. It's a great story, but is it more likely that Grimstead and Downard had a chance meeting because of a photo of MLK, furthering the Downard mythos of assassination and a killing of the king ritual? Or is it more likely that Grimstead was researching the history of steamrollers, asphalt, and roads with Judge Raymond L. Drake, and that's when he first came across Downard's father and his asphalt patent, and then James Shelby Downard Jr. Downard's particular association with alchemy and occult forces via his father and grandfather as Freemasons and Masonic persecution as a pharmacose is extremely strange in the context that his father built a great many of the roads that allowed America to grow into the country that it is today. And no doubt, his father received contracts from highway commissions controlled by Freemasons because he was also a Mason. Is it more likely that Grimstead was connected to Downer through asphalt than assassination?
5: And this is a letter to a British researcher named Ian Blake that I uh, acquired in the uh, 1990s when I was uh, corresponding with uh, Blake, who had corresponded with Downard. And the date of the letter is uh, January 25th, 1993. And uh, Downard writes, Dear Mr. Blake, Sorcery Sex Assassination and the Science of Symbolism was written and compiled about 1972, and I was delayed in publishing it due to a series of thefts. I was then in St. Petersburg, Florida, and there I extended my friendship to a boy who had been raised a Roman Catholic and who said he only went to church to take his mother. He also said he had been in the Ku Klux Klan and the National Socialist Party with headquarters in Washington, D.C., but that he had severed connections with both of those organizations. I didn't suspect the Roman Catholic Nazi Ku Kluxer of not being a friend for quite a time, and then when the manuscript for the book was ready for publication, with Michael Hoffman having edited three excellent chapters, the manuscript was stolen again, and it was then that I discovered that the Roman Catholic Nazi Ku Kluxer was stealing from me with the help of his brother. <coughs> You know, these people who supposedly ripped off uh, Downard's manuscript uh, that are described thusly as Roman Catholic, Nazi, Ku Klux, or blah, 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 sound suspiciously like the Saunders brothers. At the time, Richard
1: Saunders was the organizing member of the National Socialist White People's Party in St. Petersburg, Florida. In 1973, there's some speculation among researchers that Grimstead and Hoffman were present in St. Petersburg to assist Saunders in establishing this new chapter, or were at least sympathetic to his cause. Hoffman served for a time as the assistant director of the Institute for Historical Review, or IHR, a Holocaust denial organization. And as mentioned previously, Grimstead published Anti-Zion in 1976 which was distributed by Noontide Press, a California publishing house run by Willis A. Cardo, a well-known anti-Zionist and founder of the ultra-conservative Liberty Lobby. Grimstad's anti-Zion quotes several hundred famous historical figures from Winston Churchill and Mark Twain to Napoleon and Cicero, many of whom said international Jewry is embarked on a conspiracy to dominate the world. According to the Washington Post in a 1978 article, William N. Grimstead stated in registration papers filed in November of that year that he received $20,000 as a gift or honorarium apparently in appreciation for his book, Anti-Zion, from the government of Saudi Arabia. His book is dedicated to the late King Faisal, who he describes as a distinguished statesman and humanitarian who in this new dark age never lost insight into the hidden causes of world upheaval? Grimstead purportedly registered as a foreign agent of Saudi Arabia in order to receive the money. In the early 1970s, he was also managing editor of White Power, the bi-monthly publication of the American Nazi Party, now the National Socialist White People's Party. When Go-Rightly and I discussed the lost manuscript, it was obvious That there were sections which were probably not written by Downard, if anything at all in the manuscript was written by Downard. Numerous parts read as if they were written by Grimstead or Hoffman, focusing on the involvement of Jews and Freemasons in various conspiracies. And there are sections regarding the greening of America that absolutely appear to be written by Grimstead when taken in the context of his authorship of The Rebirth of Pan. All of this Downer material was a fucking labyrinth. What was true, who wrote what, did Downer really exist the way he was described, was there a real James Shelby Downer Jr. And then another James Shelby Downer Jr. that was just a literary invention created for the sole purpose of propaganda. His date of birth was wrong, his date of death was in question, and there were less than five photos of him publicly available. For such an eccentric, larger-than-life character, you'd think there would be hundreds of photos of Downard all across America as he chased down his theories of mystical toponymy and synchromysticism. But there aren't. Because I was running into so many dead ends, I ended up hiring a local private investigator to start looking into Downard. I wanted any info on him that she could get that we might have missed. I wanted her to talk to family members and reach out to the principal players in the mystery who were still alive, Grimstead, Hoffman, Freeland. I wanted her to find Downer's death certificate in Memphis, Tennessee, and I wanted to know the circumstances of his death. But even though most of the people she talked to were cordial and open at first, once the questions and the inquiry began into the real makings of the Downer mythos, into the reality of the man... Inevitably, everyone clammed up. There were no willing answers and only a host of lies. See, that's why I think he initially talked to the, P- the private investigator I hired, because it kind of scared him because she didn't reveal who the client was. Mm-hmm. And so he needed to know, he continued to talk to her and give her just enough information to get to the point where he said, Well, in order to tell you more, I need to know who you're who hired you. Right. Uh-huh. right. But, but but then at the end he says, you know, he he doesn't want us to discount Downard. But it's like, what are you if all of this is true,
4: right? Mm-hmm.
1: Then why wouldn't you just recount the story that's true? But the fact yeah. that 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 he wouldn't, and then when I when we told him, this is the deal. He was like, no further information because mm-hmm. because it's like he knows that what we're finding out totally contradicts the story that they're telling. You know, mm-hmm. and this this myth of a guy in a fucking Airstream, you know, driving across the country with a 45 on his hip. And, and like Darian pointed out, he's kind of like the atomic cowboy.
4: Because Exactly. Of-
1: right. Yeah. And for sure. And, And so he ends up in fucking St. Petersburg, of all places, with Hoffman and Grimstead flipping burgers, frying hamburgers, right, and telling them about all this shit. So says Hoffman when he describes that situation. Mm -hmm. And then he brings up Petey the Rabbit, right? And see, I thought this was very telling. He (laughs) mentions Petey the Rabbit,
4: right? Who the fuck's Petey the Rabbit? (laughs)
1: Have you not seen this? No. <laughs> dude, dude. So Downard had a fucking rabbit, right? He mm-hmm. said he had a rabbit called Petey. Petey, though, doesn't actually exist. And so down so Hoffman says he never saw Petey, but that he had achieved mythical. Let me find this here. <laughs> it's incredible, dude. It's like what the fuck? So, so he talks about Peter Peter the Rabbit, and he actually had he said he belonged to a club mm-hmm. that involved the rabbit, right? It was it was such a crazy name, but Hoffman says he never saw it, and it was like the Cheshire Cat, right? There's this whole paragraph that he says, and I was like, Downard Is Pete. He's the, he's fake, like. He's talking about how all, oh, you know, when I was a downer, he kept talking about that damn rabbit, you know, Petey that didn't exist. No one ever saw it, you know, and right. he kept talking about his pet rabbit. And and he's like, it was mythical proportions like the Cheshire cat. And I thought mm-hmm. when you listen to Hoffman talk about Downard, he's Petey because there's no trace of Downard in the late 19th century other than through these guys. Right. Right. There's right. nothing independent outside of three or four people that even proves his existence. I mean, I know he exists, right? Like, I, I definitely have proven that a man named James Shelby Downer Jr. exists. Yeah, sure. It's
4: great.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you visit his dad's grave. But, like, mm-hmm. but definitely, I, I can't find where he's buried, you know? And, and you know, there's an Ardmore, uh, Ardmoreite newspaper where they say they have his... Uh, obituary obituary, and then i contacted them i even paid for you know access to their archives doesn't exist so the wikipedia is wrong which we're gonna have to change that you know so currently there there is no death date for him right there's no solid death date there are all these letters that you have that are from that address that his sister absolutely lived at she absolutely died there there's now the pi has contacted all the the his uh nieces and nephews and you know what I'm saying? Like all those. Is that, is that house still in their name? Uh, no, it's, it's okay. moved into, it was sold to another person and then to, to name Neville. And then another person owned it. And now it's for sale, which hmm. is like $800,000. So the phone number, right. That is on those letters from Shelby signed Shelby to uh-huh. Harfrey are the phone number is for the home phone at that address. Okay. And so okay. the first time he contacts Parfrey, he includes the phone number and tells him that he should come visit him in Memphis soon because he's going to be there for a few months. Right. And then the next letter doesn't include the phone number, which I think, and none of the rest of them include it, which I think implies that Adam called him. Mm-hmm. Right. There's no need right. to tell phone number, you know. In that one letter, he talks about how Grimstad is the perfect TV anchor voice for an interview for that Trinity film, right? Right, yeah. But he's referencing the fucking Serious Rising tapes. Everything in those letters from Downard is self-referential back to that one meeting. But at the same time, these guys keep pushing a story that they've met him dozens of times over the years, Mm -hmm. right? But there are no photos from those meetings. If you met a dude driving a fucking silver Airstream with a 45, cooking you hot dogs and hamburgers, talking about the great psychodrama in St. Petersburg, you wouldn't have taken a photo of that? I know. You know? He didn't show up in some newspaper somewhere where people were like, we should go interview that guy. Mm
4: -hmm.
1: And And so, like, I don't think that James Shelby Downard existed. As we mentioned earlier, there's a strange latter addition to the Downard Wikipedia page, which was contributed by a user who calls himself Lynchian. It states that, quote, in the early 1970s, he, Downard, was assisted in his writing and editing by John and Darlene Cox in Lake Havasu. Then... Later in the early 1980s, he resided with John and Karen Bissell in Estacada, Oregon, where Karen typed his manuscripts and John assisted with research. Whoever this Lynchian user is, he had to have intimate knowledge of Downard in order to supply this information. Why was Downard living with Cox Bissell? Did he require assistance because of his health? Is it possible he was suffering from schizophrenia? And what about these writings that Cox Bissell assisted with? Where are they? And what strange theories might they harbor, if they're real? Of course, maybe Downard never lived with Cox Bissell. Maybe this part of Downard's history is another manufactured lie by whoever Lynchian is. My research partner and associate producer of Pennyroyal, Darian West, discovered something strange when he began digging deeper into downard's wikipedia page
2: so i was going through the um the james shelby downard um edits to the wikipedia article and trying to get like a timeline of of when the edits were made and seeing like who made those edits and what other edits they made uh, to other articles and um, so basically the first article was written in august 27th of 2006 by a guy that went by the Ragman, and and really that's just a most basic um summary of his life and it includes um it includes a uh the the wrong date that he died and um and what it listed 96 but it's revised later to 98 um he uh, also referred to him as growing up in the deep south uh versus oklahoma indian territory which is where it's kind of changed to later on um the uh the, the, the there isn't a lot of evidence that he was ever i mean i mean I, it depends on what you call the deep south but you don't think of him as being in like a lot of places except memphis which might be like the the border between the the deep and upper south um the it, it was revised uh in october on october 24th of 2006 um and this was the first time it was it was mentioned this is the first time that it mentions anything about parfrey memphis uh gramstead hoffman and that is done by an anonymous user, user with an ip address in perth australia um, so that's the first time that any of this is associated with any of them, right? Uh, on that same day that it was edited by that guy, it was edited by a user named Lynchian. And it had, so keep in mind, it hadn't been edited in two years, right? And so here's another odd thing I found, though, is when I was going back, when I was going through looking at other, okay, so I think that Lynchian, Lynchian is also the first person that rewords uh a controversial Holocaust denier to the great Fordian. Michael Hoffman. I think Michael Hoffman is the, is Lynchian, the editor, because Michael Hoffman's page is the most edited Wikipedia page I've ever seen. There are thousands of edits, thousands of edits over the past, like just in December this year, there's hundreds of edits, right? And so like, I think that he was, he was editing and under this sort of like David Lynch type, user, right? And never realized that it was being seen, but then it's all there on the contributor page. You can see all the edits that, th- that they've made, right? And they've edited the Michael Hoffman article the most, you know? And so then it's, that stuff is edited out later by other users. One of them, I am nearly certain is Spence. They've done hundreds and hundreds of Wikipedia edits on all kinds of military operations in Europe and all that. I think that's him. And so He edits out a lot of the nonsense like all the great 40 and stuff and it's getting reworded to like 40 and author and all this this user named lynchian was not a registered user but you can see all of the edits they made and they only ever made edits to the Downard article the article on michael hoffman and a writer a southern writer named harry cruz and if you look up who harry cruz was he he's he write, he's part of this tradition of grit lit, which is uh, like real edgy southern literature inspired by his teacher was actually Flannery O'Connor's teacher as well. He went to the University of Florida st- and he lived in Florida the rest of his life. Uh, and he had a nervous breakdown uh, in I think it's like the 30s or 40s and went across the country on a motorcycle. Right. And he has all these crazy stories. He wrote his most famous book is is a book called um, A Feast of Snakes, and it is about this weird town in the south called Mystic Georgia in which these uh all this crazy stuff happens right and uh, it's they have this thing called the rattlesnake festival which is where they rattles, round up rattlesnakes to kill them but they get crazier and crazier and the sheriff starts molesting young girls and starts c- kidnapping girls and raping them and and it eventually terminates with someone just jumping into this pit of snakes you know and like just like as a this real graphic suicide now this is what's weird right okay this person uh, edited all those articles uh, over the span of two years right they only made a couple of edits to the harry cruz article but if you look up harry cruz dude check this out he looks look you see this like mustache and everything it's exactly like the picture of James Shelby Downer. And see, he's obsessed with all of these places that are named weird things, like Enigma and Mystic and all of this stuff. He was in, uh, he was living around the, like, um, the Northern, like, or Central Florida area. He would have been in St. Petersburg at the same time. I think this is his picture standing in front of the house in Memphis. I think that this, I think this is him. I mean, look how close that looks. This is pretty close. And he even has the same mole. No. Yeah. No way. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's the same. See, look at this. See, there's Downard, right? And see, look at this. Could it be this guy in person? Like, that's a character he made. Do you think that's what it is? It's possible. I mean, definitely James Shelby Downard existed. Right, right, right. right. He also would have known this guy. Maybe this guy is like, like. But maybe he created this because he has this whole story about going across the U.S. on a motorcycle with guns and shit. I mean, it's the exact same story. It would have happened at the same time. He gets he gets beat up in a fight in uh, in Montana and ends up in jail. He said it was a fair fight by a one legged Indian man, and he he gets like he was has this crazy over the top. Weird lifestyle, really, really writing grungy, sort of crazy stuff. And when you read the prose, it sounds just like that same thing. It's exactly that kind of really polished literature, you know? It's really weird. Are there any recordings of him
1: talking? About
2: oh, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, sure he's very famous. Rolling Stone did a bunch of articles on him. He did the, all these articles on David Duke for the Rolling Stone. He's like, he did not. Yeah, dude. That's
1: why. But that connects him
2: to the fucking right wing. Right, yeah. I'm telling you, I think this is. Him. I think he has to be involved in this. He has to have written some of this stuff.
1: The strangest thing was was when Darian found the stuff about Harry Cruz that that possibly this Lynchian was the you know editor of the wikipedia page um and that he had also edited this harry cruz page right and so when we you know he for, for, you know he was proposing whether or not this could be cruz and so um you know we we found some recordings of harry cruz played them alongside Downard's voice and man they sound very very similar
5: well, well yeah that's weird he played those for me And they do sound quite uh, similar, I mean, there's that inflection, that Southern sing-song draw, that's similar, except Downard's recordings are, you know, it's a higher pitch, his voice in those, like he had a higher pitch voice than this Cruise guy you're talking about, you know, and I suppose if your theory is correct, then maybe this recording of Cruz was maybe speeded up a little bit, you know, to get that higher pitch. I mean, I kind of doubt it, but yeah, there are some similarities for sure in the two voices. And also the downward recording has always come off to me as sounding a bit effective, you know, or overly theatrical. But maybe I'm reading uh, too much into all of this, but yeah, man. There's, <laughs> uh, yeah, those two uh, recordings uh, you let me listen to of Cruz uh, juxtapose against Downard, uh Yeah, it makes you think.
1: Well, the 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 Cruise thing too. Then I found that Cruz wrote the article in playboy about (laughs) david duke right the the -hmm. button down terror of david duke yeah and and so then i was looking at david duke and and the connection to Cruz, and then i started just to see if uh hoffman or (laughs) grimstead knew david duke and then lo and behold you find out that you know grimstead was basically the pr person for david duke insane so it's like He had he and then uh Cruz was living in Florida and he was frequenting Saint Pete, right? Mm. And he was a huge and he was a huge Kerouac fan. Mm. So I'm like, (laughs) is it possible that these guys somehow, you know, Kerouac's really in the in the mix of this whole thing? Well, so so I've I've heard rumors that there are some audio recordings, some tapes, that um, of Downard possibly speaking mm-hmm. with Jack Kerouac. Oh,
5: oh, yeah, yeah, right. That <laughs> well, that's another strange one. About fifteen years ago, my friend Keith Hansen, when he was doing his podcast, uh, Visigoths Grassy Knoll, he had on as a guest this lady named uh, Diane DeRoy, and they did an episode about uh, Kerouac because uh, DeRoy, you know, she was like a Kerouac scholar of sorts, and she had also been a reporter for uh, NPR, and so, yeah, you know, she seemed pretty legit. And although they didn't discuss this uh, purported downward kerouac tape on the show, uh, DeRoy later told uh, Keith that she had or had heard tapes of Downard and Kerouac together, having a powwow. And like there was more than one tape, possibly even a series of tape. And I went, wow, wow, you know, that, wow, that's crazy. And, you know, I was uh, planning to contact DeRoy, but, uh, you know, a couple of years passed. And by the time I did try to track her down, it was like uh, she had totally disappeared, you know. I found trace of her, traces of her on the web, but eventually the trail went cold, and later on I asked Grimstead if this was possible, you know, that Downard and Kerouac could have met, and he thought, you know, the timeline was wrong, that they wouldn't have been in uh, St. Petersburg at the same time, you know, but Grimstead suggested I ask Charles uh, Saunders about it, you know, the guy who discovered this Downard manuscript. Uh, because Downard, or excuse me, because Saunders, it so happens, had known Kerouac in, uh, St. Petersburg. And it dawned on me that maybe Saunders had even connected the, the two together, you know, Downard and Kerouac. And so when I got a hold of Saunders and asked him about, you know, this possibility of Downard and Kerouac meeting, he told me that he didn't know about any tapes, but that it was indeed possible that, uh, the two men might have met, and that the time period jived. Sanders said that the most likely place they would have met was a bohemian coffee shop art house called Bo Arts, which is spelled B-E-A-U-X, Bo Beau Arts, that was in Pinellas Park, Florida, that was a famous bohemian-type hangout, where, for instance, uh, Jim Morrison used to hang out in the mid-'60s. You know, it's a place for beat poets to read their poems and play bongos, and uh, where interesting characters like Downer, you know, maybe would visit and where he could observe such uh, characters in the wild, so to speak. And also during uh, this period, Kerouac had evolved politically into a sort of right wing William F. Buckley conservative. And by then, he held in disdain many of the people in the counterculture. So, you know, really, Kerouac and Downard could even be seen as uh, sort of politically aligned by this time, or at least in agreement about the communist menace as they perceived it.
1: Could Southern writer Harry Cruz be the voice of James Shelby Downard Jr. on the *Serious Rising Tapes? Downard was obviously a real person, but could he be the inspiration for the mythical Downard that Hoffman, Grimstead, Parfrey, and others manufactured? Cruz was teaching college in Florida in the mid-1970s and could have been in the St. Petersburg area, hoping to run into his hero, Jack Kerouac, at Halsom's Bookstore, which Kerouac and Downard frequented. There's also evidence that would suggest Jack Kerouac and Downard were contemporaries that knew each other and audio recordings of the two men together do exist. We did compare the voice of Downard on the Sirius Rising Tapes with that of Harry Cruz delivering a lecture. And the speech similarities between the two are eerie, though Downard in the Serious Rising Tapes sounds older than what would have been a 39-year-old Cruz in 1974. Though there are a few photos of Downard publicly available, the ones that do exist have an uncanny similarity Harry Cruz. Go pull it up right now. Harry Cruz and James Shelby Downard. There's also the interesting fact that in 1979, Harry Cruz traveled with David Duke, founder of the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, in and around the U.S. to find out what was behind this new, kinder, gentler face of the KKK. The editors at Playboy thought Cruz would provide an interesting viewpoint on this new move by the KKK. The article, entitled, The Button-Down Terror of David Duke, ran in the February 1980 issue of Playboy. While I do not believe Cruz harbors any racist or white supremacist leanings based on his writings or his life's work, and definitely the article does not endorse Duke or his ideals, it is worth noting that Grimstead was tapped by David Duke to write a column for the Crusader the KKK's main publication. Grimstead became the editor in 1979, so it is entirely possible that Cruz met Grimstead while working with Duke. Or, ponder this for a moment, is it possible that Harry Cruz was able to gain access for the article on David Duke because he had met Grimstead a few years earlier in 1974 in St. Petersburg, chasing down Jack Kerouac and finding Downard? and then appearing on the serious rising tapes. It's just a conjecture, like so much of the Downard mystery. The truth of any of this is suspect. From the very existence of Downard, the arch conspiracy theorist and founder of his strange brand of mystical toponymy and synchromysticism, to the possibility that he's simply the literary invention of far right-wing and anti-Semitic propagandists. It is also very possible that even Downard's most fundamental foundational theories are not his own. Surfield Stevenson discovered documents that indicate Downard's mystical methodology may not be his own, but may be based on Jim Garrison's theory of propinquity. Garrison, the New Orleans DA who prosecuted Clay Shaw, as a suspect in the assassination of JFK, used propinquity as his primary investigative technique. Garrison wrote two memos titled Time and Propinquity, Factors in Phase One. And his concept of propinquity went beyond geography to include any sort of relationship, anything that was substantial enough to indicate some causal connection, no matter how strange, numerical, or personal.
3: I wanted to ask you if you've found anything that puts Downer around uh, the circle of Jim Garrison, who was the JFK guy, you know, they made the... Yeah, movie yeah, down in New
1: Orleans. Yeah, um,
3: district attorney.
1: Now, I mean, so far, the only thing that... Th- th- as far as I've gotten with his actual connection to JFK is the Ann Parton, Alan Whitworth, Del Charo thing, right? I haven't seen anything in New Orleans yet.
3: So, um... You know this this newest Adam Curtis movie that was really inspired by uh, some of Go Rightly stuff in the tri- in the uh, trickster and the conspiracy. Go Rightly references these memos of Garrison called Time and Propinquity. There's two of these memos, and it's like, and I was telling Adam too. I was like, dude, there's got to be some kind of connection. Downer must have known about some of this like weird investigative techniques of Garrison because it seems like some kind of proto-synchromysticism because Garrison is basically taking maps and he's like divining, using the names, trying to find people with the same names and locations and like saying, oh, just give me a map and I can figure out any mystery. And everyone's like, man, he's he's just fucking crazy. It looks like proto-synchromysticism. And I think Downer might have been really inspired by it. He's got time and number correlation memos. That's the same kind of like divining with names and numbers and then he was also amassing all this stuff on secret societies. So the only connection that I found um, that's like in the orbit at all is Mark Lane, who was an attorney who hooked up with Garrison, and he would later represent a lot of really controversial people. So he he represented Liberty Lobby later. Um, so that's the only person that kind of is at least in that orbit. It's really weird when you look at these Garrison memos, it looks like where Downard might've kind of got these ideas from, but put more of his like mystical spin and, and obsession with Freemasonry into it. It really looks like it. It's it's weird. I was just like, and I told Adam, I was like, or, you know, Adam Rightly, I was like, man, is this, where the fuck this comes from? Like Jim Garrison? Cause Jim Garrison is really the, you know, proto conspiracy theorist, you know, stereotype. So I think a lot of it might've come from that.
1: Did he publish those? Like, were they in the public where Downer could have read them?
3: That's what I don't know. Um, a lot of this is, like, out now because it's just in his files. But I think if you went down there and hanging out with him, you know, I'm sure it could have happened. But but who knows? I mean, I w- I really want to know because if, if he's around that orbit, then I think it's it's pretty safe that he got a lot of that, those ideas from him, though he kind of, like, you know, made made them his own.
1: Some people are simply strange circuits connected through improbable causality to networks of significant events and actions. These strange circuits seem to function as a type of confirming observer and an instrument of second-order cybernetic machinery that serves the purpose, through their very existence, of confirming the blockchain of reality. Carrie Thornley, James Shelby Downer Jr., Alexander Katerma, Lester Burns, Chuck Hayes, and so many more individuals that were always in the right place at the right time. They each had contact with various actors and events that would alter human history and society. And often the only connection between these strange modalities and events are these strange circuits, these unique observers. Their existence and function hints at an underlying nature to reality that we're only now beginning to see. We're all tied together through roads and paths, lines and currents, hedgerows and highways. We each share strange connections with each other, connections to strangers, connections to people that we've never met and will never meet. Not to the extent that these Strange circuits like James Shelby Downard are nexus points in the tapestry, but there are stitches and strands that connect each and every one of us. And beyond our connection to Grimstead through Downard, we ended up discovering an incredible synchronicity that we could not have imagined. I was finally able to get a copy of the article William Grimstead sent Robert Anton Wilson in 1976, which Wilson mentions in his book, Cosmic Trigger. A fellow researcher and collector of the Fortian Times in England had the article in his collection and was gracious enough to send it to me. And when I read it, I fucking laughed because it was Penny Royal in nineteen seventy three. In Leicestershire, England, events there at that time in that space were playing out in the same way with a different group of researchers. There had to be a connection. As Jim Garrison might say, this was propinquity. Penny Royal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Klonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging.
4: for mankind
3: Mind traps to me
4: Mind traps to me
5: Past solutions Solution of
2: mankind
4: Mankind